Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. A third grade teacher in Vermont read a book in class about a black man shot by police. A parent complained, a school board stepped in, and a different teacher said, no way. I had the opportunity to say, you know what, this doesn't feel good to me. I don't like the way I'm being treated. I don't like this policy, and I can walk away. From the New England News Collaborative and America Amplified, this is a special on racism in New England. Today, how racism impacts what we learn in school. We'll talk to students from New Hampshire who reflect on how their education fell short. This idea of racism, racial inequality, or inequality in general has was definitely presented to us as a thing of the past. And how we can change that. Providing a different perspective and having my students realize that we have different traditions, different cultures that all have powerful and all equally valid ways of understanding the world and our place in it. That's coming up after the break. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Today on Next, we're rebroadcasting the final show from our series of specials on racism in New England. The series was a production of the New England News Collaborative in partnership with America Amplified. Guest hosts were Peter Biello from New Hampshire Public Radio and Tracy Griffith, a professor of media studies, journalism, and digital arts at St. Michael's College in Vermont. I'll let them take it from here. When we talk about addressing racism in education, some people start thinking about school desegregation programs, like court-ordered busing back in Boston in the 70s, or maybe Hartford, Connecticut's school lottery system that requires a certain racial makeup in its magnet schools. We also typically talk about the achievement gap and the fact that black students are often more harshly disciplined than their white classmates. And that's an incredibly important issue. Today, though, we're focusing the show on how racism has affected what we're taught in school, lessons and curriculum. You have a story, Tracy. Yes. So my son, in his eighth grade class, played a game called the Colony Game. The whole point of the game is to increase the population in your colony. But the problem with this exercise, this game, is that one of the choices is whether or not to accept slaves into your colony. I had a real problem with that. It seems problematic, too, because the students are asked to take the perspective of and empathize with the the white settlers and make decisions about everybody else. Absolutely. And of course, the other aspect of it is it's a game, <laughs> right? Those decisions that were made at the very beginning, at the founding of our country, impact what we are facing in our country today. And there's no understanding, there's no connection between those things. The interesting thing is, so my son in his colony, he took in the slave ships and then immediately freed all of the slaves. Thereby, he got the population boost, but he didn't face the moral dilemma of owning other people. Whereas other kids in his classroom took in the slaves, kept them as slaves. And my son, as the only African-American in the classroom, had a real problem with that, that his friends, in order to win a game, saw no problem with enslaving people who looked like him. That would be really disturbing from his perspective, I imagine. 
Absolutely. And so there really needs to be more kind of an examination of that, right? I know that you grew up in New England, right? Yeah, I grew up in Fall River, Massachusetts, just 20 miles east of Providence, Rhode Island. Do you think that racism impacted what you learned as a kid? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I went to public school up until eighth grade, and public school history education was very centered on white culture, you know, what the presidents did, what wars were fought, uh, and what pieces of legislation. We, we heard bits and pieces about the Trail of Tears. And of course, we studied Martin Luther King, but that was really the extent of it until I get to high school. And I had, I should say, I'm fortunate enough, I went to a private high school and I was taught literally straight from, you know, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, where we, we focused on uh, African-Americans, women, Native Americans, and, and workers. And that really opened my eyes. Do you think that it should have been different when you think back on what you learned? Oh, absolutely. I wish I had known all that stuff earlier. You know, as a kid, you get Columbus Day off school, and a lot of people still do. And to not be able to accurately reflect on that memory was one of many shortcomings of my education. I think as a young kid, I would have been able to handle the uglier parts of American history. I would have been disturbed by them, but it wouldn't have been too much for me. I think my parents, too, would have agreed with me and would have felt like that was okay for me. Though parents, I understand, feel differently on that. And at times, they do push back when teachers try to tell the full story of American history in their classrooms. That is totally what happened recently in a school district in Springfield, Vermont. It's a predominantly white district near the New Hampshire border. And it started back in June uh, during a remote video class when a third grade teacher read their students the book called Something Happened in Our Town, A Child's Story About Racial Injustice. So it's a fictional story, and it follows a black family and a white family as they talk about a police shooting of a black man in their community. Yeah, and shortly after the book was read, there was controversy. A parent complained. The board each had a chance to review the material, the book itself. A number of times. This is the August board meeting where parents Jeremy and Christine Desjardins publicly voiced their complaint. Jeremy is in law enforcement. The book we felt was not appropriate to be taught in a third grade classroom without um, the topics being first portrayed to the students or parents' um, input or buy-in. As a police officer listening in on that um, conversation, it does point out some themes that police officers stick together, which are general terms that we treat blacks all the same way, which is another general term. My child came away from that lesson more disheartened and with more questions regarding my husband's profession than he ever did with race. So that was the disheartening aspect of it. So that was the Desjardins complaint. In early September, a new teacher got wrapped up in the debate. Derek Johnson is black. He just started at the school district as an elementary literacy coach. And Derek joins us to help unpack what happened. It's good to have you on the show, Derek. Well, thank you for having me here. So I want to jump right in here and establish this book. And I actually want to play a short clip of a portion of the book being read by Susie Packenham on YouTube. So this is the discussion in the White family after the police shooting. After school, Emma asked her mother, why did the police shoot that man? It was a mistake, said her mother. I feel sad for the man and his family. Yes, the police thought he had a gun, said her father. It wasn't a mistake, said her sister Liz. 
The cop shot him because he was black. And then here's the black family talking about the same shooting. But he won't go to jail, said his father. Why not? asked Josh. Cops stick up for each other, said Josh's brother Malcolm, and they don't like black men. Josh was confused. Why not? Some police are black. You're right, said his mother. Uncle James is a police officer, and so is my friend Kenya. There are many cops, black and white, who make good choices, said his father, but we can't always count on them to do what's right. So that's an excerpt of Something Happened in Our Town. It's a children's book intended to guide discussions on race and racism. Derek, as an educator, do you think that this material is appropriate for elementary school kids? Absolutely. Uh, the book is appropriate for elementary school children, and it was actually written for uh, children. I believe the author wrote the book for children ages four and above. Um, and I think it's a great story that sometimes is left out of our classrooms. And, but it was a great way to bring current events and have discussions about police violence and race, equity and justice inside the classroom. So a local newspaper, the Eagle Times, covered the book controversy. The paper reported that parents of the student complained to the district superintendent that the book was highly offensive and not appropriate for the age group. What's your reaction, Derek? Well, I found it to be problematic um, simply because these are conversations that children of color, particularly black and brown children, have to have all the time. And therefore, I think that it is our due diligence as educators, especially as educators here in the New England area of white children, mostly white children, to ensure that they are also having these conversations because that is the only way that we are going to come to a place where this type of thing people being killed in the streets by police officers or any other type of activity that is deeply embedded in race is going to stop when we're all aware of it, especially our children. The parents did say at an August school board meeting that it wasn't their intention to get the book banned. But what did the board end up doing? Well, at first, the board decided that they were going to come up with a policy that would deem certain topics in the classroom controversial. And these controversial topics would have to be cleared by administrators before they could be discussed in the classroom. But then there was a pushback by the community at the school board meeting. At least 70 residents of the town showed up and they pushed back on this idea that there should be a controversial policy set in place for teachers because teachers, just in general in teaching, that's controversial. Uh, we talk about things that a lot of people disagree about. People disagree that, you know, dinosaurs roam the earth or that the Holocaust took place. Um, and those things don't have to be something that we should have to seek permission to discuss. And so what ended up happening was that the school board, um, during that school uh, board meeting, they took that policy off the table and decided not to push it forward. So so just to clarify, the board decided it would not require teachers to ask parents for permission on controversial topics. So teachers can continue to choose to read that book and others as they choose. Yes, as far as I understand it, that is what has happened. But after that, you resigned. It was before the first day of school for the students. Yes, was I did. Okay. Uh, but my resignation, that was part of my resignation from the Springfield School District. I wrote a letter to the school board letting them know that I was going to resign. And I pointed out three issues. And that was because I was experiencing some racial microaggressions from administrators that I didn't 
really understand or appreciate. I also had an issue with the controversial topic that the school board was pushing forward because I thought that it was only coming about because it was talking about race and racism, because there have been a lot of over the years issues within Springfield around race, where there was a lot of discomfort and a lot of trauma that kids of color or black kids are experiencing in Springfield. And there was never anything brought to the board to stop those things from happening. So that was bothersome for me. And then lastly, because in my opinion, the way the district was handling returning to school around the COVID-19 pandemic, I didn't think they were doing a, a pretty good job of keeping people safe. And so for those three reasons, I decided to submit my resignation. So it was multifaceted. It was. So it's been about a month since your resignation. Does it feel like you made the right call? Absolutely, it does. Um, I just feel like I have a peace of mind. I'm, I'm, I had a very difficult time making the decision to resign for two reasons, really. Uh, one, because I love living in Vermont. It's always been a place that I've come to and have just felt at home. The other reason is because I'm a black man who also grew up in a predominantly white town and understand that it's been taught to me that you don't let people push you out of anything. You don't let people see you not being able to do what you set out to do. And so that was difficult for me because I had the opportunity to say, you know what, this doesn't feel good to me. I don't like the way I'm being treated. I don't like this policy and I can walk away. Unfortunately, there are people in Springfield now who can't do that who still have to show up in school, who still have to show up at work in their communities, and they still are not safe. And I think it, it falls upon um, the leaders of Springfield and the community members of Springfield to say that this is not going to be the place anymore where people don't feel safe, they don't feel comfortable. They're a part of Springfield. They're a part of Vermont. Before I let you go, Derek, I, I just want to acknowledge that you've taken a stand as an educator and as a black man, and said that these types of books need to be read. These conversations need to be had. And I'm wondering, is this a reflection on your own education growing up? I had a, I had a sixth grade teacher, uh, Miss Barbara Miles, that I haven't seen in ages. Um, but she was the first person, I think, that just opened up the world to me um, and its collective, our collective history. Um, and that a lot of contributions to our societies have been made by various and different people. And I've carried that with me. And then I had the opportunity to come to Vermont and to go to grad school. I went to Marlboro Graduate College and I entered into the Spark teacher program. And it's a program that teaches teachers how to teach through the lens of social justice. And that widened it even further for me. And so as an educator, as a black man, as someone who participates in community and helping to build community, I do think it's fundamentally important that we start right away from the youngest age, pre-K even, and having conversations around what does equity, what does justice look like? And in that it's okay to talk about race. Race exists because we make it exist. And so we can talk about it. And I think that if we begin to do that throughout our country, that there will be shifts because the children are what's going to make it change. That's my belief that they are, they are going to make the world a better place. They're the change that we wish to see in the world and they're going to make it happen. 
My guest is Derek Johnson. He still lives in Vermont. After he resigned, he was able to land a job working remotely with English language learners in Washington, D.C. Derek, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. We reached out to Zach McLaughlin, the superintendent of the Springfield School District, where Derek briefly worked. He said it's a sad moment for everyone involved and that the district does want a diverse set of voices as part of our faculty. He says he's hired an outside investigator to look into Derek's complaints. And the superintendent added, My hope is that the school board and our leadership team use the findings of that investigation to help chart a course forward on issues of race within Springfield schools. Ahead of the show, we asked you, our listeners, to join the conversation. We heard from Alyssa Chen. She's a volunteer with the Vermont Coalition for Ethnic Studies and Social Equity in Schools, which is focused on shifting education standards to include underrepresented voices. Alyssa says policy change is important, but the work goes beyond that. Policy change needs to be paired with like, cultural change. The work around learning how to hold conflict and like learning to talk about race, breaking down hierarchies, is like so important. Um, otherwise, you can have a policy to bring people of color in, but if they're coming into an institution where you know their voice isn't heard and they have no power, those teachers are really not going to last very long. That was Alyssa Chen from Vermont. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hear from two college students who say their high school education in New Hampshire missed the mark. They say it failed to teach them about New England's complicity in the slave trade, and it also failed to recognize that racism is not just a thing of the past. Plus, a teacher takes issue with that one story he says is being taught and incorporates his own changes to bring in other cultures and perspectives. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm Tracy Griffith. And I'm Peter Biello. Welcome back. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm Tracy Griffith. And I'm Peter Biello. The Southern Poverty Law Center says that most civil rights education in America is reduced to lessons about two people, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and these four words, I have a dream. And that's just the civil rights movement. What else are students missing? Adesi Okori and Grace Landry grew up in New Hampshire and attended public school in Nashua. They say their high school curriculum focused almost entirely on white stories and histories and tended to gloss over New England's role in slavery. This spring, the pair founded New Hampshire for Anti-Racist Education. The group's mission is to understand and undo the effects of systemic racism in the state's education system. Adesi and Grace join us to talk about their experiences as students in New Hampshire. Welcome, both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. (laughs) Happy to be here. So what was the aha moment that led you to realize how lacking your curriculum had been? For me, it definitely was not until I got to college that I realized how lacking it was going through the system. 
I didn't even realize there was a problem because I think we're taught in a way, especially in a state that's not over 90% white people, it's taught in a way that there is no acknowledgement that racism is still ongoing. And so when I got to college, I had an English class actually, and it was really focused on critical thinking, the education system and systemic racism and looking at how history has been connected with the events that are going on today. And this gave me a whole new view on realizing that what happened throughout the history of the country is not a siloed event from what is going on today. Racism as like an ongoing thing was not even considered or talked about. Mm-hmm. I do want to echo a lot of what Grace said in terms of her experience happening in college. And I would say that what I realize in my reflection of my high school education in New Hampshire's public education system versus my college education was that that bridge was definitely non-existent in terms of how the past brings us to the present. And I would say that this idea of racism, racial inequality or inequality in general has was definitely presented to us as a thing of the past. So how did the curriculum you received in grades K through 12 fail you as a student? We'll stay with you, Adesi. I would say that there was an emphasis in the schooling that I had on just kind of memorization and understanding the facts as they were presented to us. I wouldn't say that it was necessarily as critically thinking in that sense. And there's a way that I would think that being in New England, the issues of racism aren't necessarily highlighted because we're kind of on the good side of history. In terms of, for example, the Civil War in the United States, I would say that the role that we actually played in racial inequality in this country as a region and as a state is definitely not emphasized and presented to students. Building on that idea of thinking critically, I think that there's a fear of having uncomfortable dialogue, especially in public education, because teachers are, they don't want to risk their job or have these politicized conversations in class. And so that's something that I feel like was really missing. And being able to have an uncomfortable debate or a conversation and think about something in a perspective that's not from your own is, I think one of the most harmful things that the public education does is just have kids accept information and not question where it's coming from. And so I would say that was really the main thing that I look back on and I think the public education failed to emphasize. Was there ever a moment for either of you where you heard a teacher attempted to teach something that may verge on what could be considered controversial, I guess, a, a, a less than favorable picture of uh, New Hampshire or New England's role in the slave trade, for example. It was the, or was there a moment like, like that that uh, received pushback and caused the teacher to sort of back away from those kinds of lessons? I would say there was one experience, I have very vivid memory, I believe it was junior, senior year in a class. This was when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling during the national anthem. And the teacher brought up, it was not a history class, it was just a general, I think it was actually an engineering class. And they, she asked like what, what our thoughts were on it. But then once people started 
kind of debating and students were saying different viewpoints, she definitely, you could tell, hadn't done her own work to understand what the depth of that action was, so then was unable to support the conversation or provide, like, a different perspective than what students were saying. And so I think that that exact conversation made me think about how teachers just weren't trained to dig into the why and the critical part of rather than saying, what's your thoughts on this? Maybe why do you think what you think? So why do you think this kind of racism has persisted in curricula in New England? We'll start with you, Grace. The first thing that came to mind is just how confusing and complex changing curriculum is in the state. And if a teacher hasn't done the work to look introspectively and make sure they understand systemic racism, or if there's a lack of teacher development, they're not going to be prepared to teach an anti-racist education. But likewise, if there is an anti-racist education implemented and adopted, but there's not funding for the teacher trainings or teachers haven't been able to, then they're not going to be able to teach that new standard and curriculum. One thing that I personally look at in terms of the lack of anti-racist education in our region is the lack of representation of people of color and minorities in our education system specifically. I know that I did not have a teacher of color at all throughout my K through 12 education. And I think that it's so easy in New England, in this region that we have to say that it's a it's a them problem, as I stated before, in terms of um, the South or other um, very populous cities around the country to say that it affects them, but it doesn't affect us here um, and kind of turn a blind eye when we don't have a lot of people who are voicing these experiences and who are in positions of power to do so. How have people in the educational system and in the community responded to your group? We've been very fortunate that there's been so much support. A few people have had some pushback, and that's been actually just on social media, but mostly very supportive. And I think one of the most beneficial, I guess, groups of people that have connected with us is actually teachers in the system. And that's been extremely helpful because they talk about when your job is on the line, it's hard to speak out against the system because there's the fear that that's going to come back and affect your career. So that's been really great for us to be that voice for teachers around the state that have been feeling this way, but have been afraid to speak out because that is their job. That has been very helpful to have their support. How can students work to influence their own education and ensure their school's curricula are not racist? The first thing is to understand that students in general, you have a voice and that voice should be heard. And I know it's easy as a student kind of being in this system where you're, I guess, at the bottom of the totem pole, if you want to look at look at it that way. And a lot of the classroom settings, it's kind of like a top-down transfer of knowledge rather than a horizontal transfer of knowledge. And students can feel less empowered in the classroom if they're not um, encouraged to share their own individual values. But I would challenge students to reimagine the role that they play in this education system, to, to realize that they do have a voice and the needs that they have should be voiced to the people who are responsible for delivering their education to them. Where do you hope the group will end up? What's the end goal of, of what you're trying to do here? What has now become a very key and pivotal goal of our group in terms of empowering young students to be advocates for change in their community. We also are 
evolving to find the appropriate way to be an accountability structure for state leadership in terms of the curriculum that they do produce that is to be delivered to students. And this, these goals are all under our mission of understanding and undoing the effects of systemic racism in general in our state's education system. And we are of the mindset that this work is um, long-term work and it's not going to be finished by tomorrow or next week or next year, but we're choosing to show up every day just as best as we can and as, as honest and authentic as we can to meet people where they are and to meet this issue where it is, to address it one step at a time each day. That was Adesio Corey and Grace Landry, co-founders of New Hampshire for Anti-Racist Education. Mugabo Tiri Uwilingi Yimana teaches sixth grade math and science in Winooski, Vermont. He believes that in order to counter racism in curricula, teachers should acknowledge that they were taught from a single perspective, which influences their own teaching. Mugabo joins us now to talk about his experiences as a teacher. Welcome, Mugabo. Thank you for having me. So as a teacher, how have you seen racism play out in the curricula? One of the ways that is sort of benign on the surface, but also profound in its impact, is just the fact that we're teaching a single story, right? That as we teach the way we were taught, and if we were taught in the U.S., like I was, like I went to this um, college prep high school, I very much got a singular story, a single perspective in history, English, mathematics, as, as I'm now, you know, thinking about how I want to approach these subjects, I'm seeing how many perspectives were left out. And, you know, I've reflected on my global history class, for example, in my, in my uh, first year in high school, and how I lamented the teacher never once, at least not to my recollection, invited us to ask the question, about who wrote this book, who are the authors, what do they look like? That might have helped me think of the text as a product of a human uh, with a certain perspective and not this truth, this objective truth about what history, what, what global history is. Because I knew, I knew that it wasn't teaching me about my history, but I didn't realize, recognize the extent to which I was being fed a certain history of like the country that I had just moved to, the U.S. You know, I'm, I was born in Rwanda, right? This mm-hmm. tiny little country in, in, in Central East Africa that's mostly known for, for the genocide that happened in 1994, but it's also known as like this beautiful little country of a thousand hills with gorgeous rolling hills of tea and coffee. And I've been thinking about how we thought about numbers and, and how we thought about the natural world before the Germans and the, the Belgians came and changed our education system. Like, where do I start with looking for the history that wasn't written, you know, looking for the wisdom that I don't get to sit with my great-grandpa and, and, and hear those stories and how he thought about the natural world and how he learned about them. So I don't think we need to cover all perspectives, but we need at least another perspective, maybe another two perspectives to decenter whiteness in our curriculum, 
so our, our our curriculum often becomes racist by default because it's teaching the eurocentric view of 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 history to the neglect and ignorance of of other perspectives and other stories so what so what kind of perspectives or stories or opinions do you think are missing what should what should be included yes <laughs> and and that's uh I mean, and that's the challenge of a teacher. You know, we can't include all of them. But even I, I've, I've found, for example, that, you know, I'm teaching sixth grade for the, for the first time, teaching science. And, and a lot of the curriculum out there provides a Western perspective of science. And, you know, I, I began listening to this book by Robin Kimmerer, who's um, a, uh, an indigenous woman from the Paro Army Nation. And she's a botanist and also very much a scientist and philosopher of her own people's teaching uh, and knowledge. And the way she talks about the natural world is just so different from the way botany and Western science talks about the natural world. Even providing this one other perspective completely just shifts how I'm thinking about science, how my students are going to engage with it in realizing that science is not this predetermined subject. It's, it's a human creation and different people have approached it differently. So for example, to just get to the heart of it in Western science, the one that I was educated in, humans are very much at the center of it. You know, the world exists to serve us, right? And, and yet in, in the world that Robin Kimmer is talking about, humans are very much <laughs> still guests on this planet. We, we arrived much later than, for example, the plants and so there is this perspective in the way she talks about the natural world that we're the little siblings, like the littlest siblings to plants, and we have so much to learn from our elders. So you've been talking about this book, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. You've been reading and incorporating it into your curriculum now, but looking back, how do you feel about what you taught before and what your science students learned about before? So for example in a class where I was teaching robotics, which was another class that I was teaching middle schoolers and high schoolers. You know, I had a class full of like black and brown girls in my robotics class in middle school. And having studied engineering and knowing what the demographics look like in, in engineering companies, I, I found a way to create a little slideshow where I showed them, first of all, what comes up when you type in engineer in Google, you know, getting images of, of a bunch of white older men. And then we had the conversation about, you know, here you are and the people doing the best in my robotics class were these girls. Like they were, they were kicking butt in the class, right? So what happens between going from this to a room, you know, having rooms in Silicon Valley and, 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 and around different tech centers in this country here in Vermont, right here in Burlington, right? When you go to different companies, what's happening? And where are these girls going? And why aren't they ending up in these positions? And we also talked about if you, you know, Anjali or Shristi, if you designed like this product, right? What, what, what would this app that you're using, what would it look like if you had created it? Or in, in a science class where I have, I have a class with um, uh, English language learners, a lot of them just recently arrived uh, refugees uh, and, and immigrants in my class. And the, the whole group is almost uh, Swahili speaking students. And, and there I know that, you know, we have, we have some Christians, we have some 
Muslims uh, and when we're talking about science and maybe talking about the beginnings of the earth, I, I, I made a very conscious decision to not try to displace the beliefs that they were coming in with, to offer this perspective as one perspective. And we can hold this understanding of the world and still honor what we're talking about at home and, and, and the conversations we're having at home. But the intention was never to say what you have is false and it needs to be replaced by this singular view. So there it was more really trying to pull in like who they are into the class and saying we, we can create space for ourselves in this class. Um, that was more of what I was doing, you know, uh, kind of desperately looking for ways to to ensure that they don't think that they need to leave themselves home and come to school to learn this whole new world. That was Mugabo Tiri Uwilingi-Yimana, a sixth grade math and science teacher in Winooski, Vermont. We also heard from white teachers around New England about their struggles with resources in the classroom. Megan Kelly wrote to us, she teaches in Ware, New Hampshire now after years teaching in the city of Lawrence, Massachusetts. She called the move quite the cultural jump, noting big differences in spending, access to research-based and effective curricula and professional development, as well as enrichment and intervention services. Joe Troiano worked for 28 years in the Hartford, Connecticut public school system. He saw many of the same disparities Megan wrote about, but he says he also grappled with how to teach about the realities of racism and slavery. We had a social studies curriculum and the textbooks had been written very carefully around issues like slavery. But we also had a message from administration. These students are so far behind in math and science. Don't try to teach social studies every day. Teach social studies one week, teach science the next week. Whatever we were to teach in social studies, you could chop half of it out of the curriculum to begin with. And whatever we did teach was taught at a pretty surface level. I remember after my second or third year of teaching, um, a humanities group got involved with rewriting the fifth grade curriculum for social studies around migration. And we talked in terms of why the Irish came here, why the Italians came here, the black migration up from the uh, agrarian south to the cities. And it was to be taught from original source documents. Let's teach from advertisements about slave auctions and diaries and government documents that were a matter of record. And just sitting down with a group of teachers to try to write that curriculum one summer for 11 weeks was um, just an enormous push and pull about what you could say and what you couldn't say. I don't know whatever became of that curriculum. My guess is it wasn't used for very long and wasn't used very effectively. That was Joe Troiano. He worked in the Hartford, Connecticut public schools for 28 years. After the break, we'll talk to a teacher who's spent the past few years trying to create a more inclusive social studies curriculum. She's leading the effort on indigenous and Africana studies in Portland, Maine. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm Peter Biello. And I'm Tracy Griffith.
Okay, we're back. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm Peter Biello. And I'm Tracy Griffith. Nearly two decades after the state of Maine passed a law requiring public schools to teach indigenous history and culture, the curriculum at many schools still falls short. Our next guest is trying to change that for the Portland Public Schools District, a district that is more racially diverse than many others in northern New England. Fiona Hopper is the social studies teacher, leader, and coordinator of Wabanaki Studies for the district. She's also developing an Africana Studies curriculum. Fiona joins us now to talk about her work. Fiona, it's good to have you on the program. Thank you, Peter. It's nice to be here. Let's start with Wabanaki Studies. Why was it important for you personally to help establish this curriculum for students in the Portland Public Schools District? I have been a teacher in the Portland schools for 15 years. Um, I've taught English language arts to a mainstream class in um, seventh and eighth grade. And then I've also been an ELL teacher for newly arrived students in third, fourth and fifth grade. And in addition to that, I co-founded and continue to co-teach a course for Portland teachers called Race in the United States. And so all of those various experiences converged and sort of led me to find that legislation that you mentioned in your introduction. And I realized as I was sort of immersing myself in um, anti-racist education and also trying to understand Wabanaki culture, history, continuous presence in this area for the course that I teach, I realized that it's of central importance for students to understand the place where they live and that anti-racist work really begins with home and understanding where you are in relationship to your surroundings and to the place where you live. You've mentioned this, but let me put a fine point on it. What has been taught or what's being taught currently and what's left out in your view when it comes to Wabanaki studies? So it's pretty uneven. There are teachers who have um, included Wabanaki studies components in their curriculum, you know, during this long 20 year time since that legislation was passed. That's true across the state as a whole, but it's not institutionalized anywhere. So you, you as a student might perhaps have a teacher who includes some content around the tribes of the Wabanaki Confederacy, which include Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Maliseet, and Mi'kmaq and Abenaki, though the Abenaki do not currently have a land base in Maine uh, at this time. And you might encounter some information if you have a teacher who is focused on that, but that's really left completely up to chance. And that feels very problematic that a law is sort of just not taken seriously enough to be institutionalized in school districts. And typically content is, and this is not true of everyone, there are some fantastic teachers in our district who have been doing great work for decades, but more often than not, If you are a student in a classroom with a teacher who is focusing on Wabanaki studies content, it um, often ascribes that experience to the past. And so you as a student are left with the impression that these were people who one time existed but don't exist currently, especially at the elementary levels. The focus on Wabanaki cultures tends to be what I would call like a a colonial view checklist of culture, of surface elements of culture, music, art, transportation, housing, and sort of just skimming the surface of culture. And then students really aren't being exposed to tribal government structures, indigenous methods of diplomacy, indigenous sovereignty movements, the connection between 
indigenous ecological knowledge and environmental justice movements, all that stuff that is really gives a connection to the contemporary lives of Native people in what's now called Maine. Mm -hmm. And in the past, you used the term curricular violence. What do you mean by that? Um, So that's a term that's coming out of a lot of anti-racist teaching and curricular work. And I I think it's pushing back on the notion that absence from curriculum is sort of somehow benign. That's how uh, sort of the leaving out of Africana studies or the leaving out of indigenous studies has been termed in the past as kind of an absence. And that's true, but often um, absence leaves the, the listener or the reader of that term with the impression that that's kind of non-harming. I think anti-racist activists, teacher activists, uh, indigenous teacher activists and other activists of color are really trying to point that that is erasure. um, And erasure is a continuation of violence that has roots in settler colonialism. So would a curriculum designed to teach students that American history begins when the ships arrived from Europe, would that be an example of curricular violence? I mean, it depends on how that is taught. A version of American history that leaves out the genocide of indigenous people is an incomplete American history and really is perpetuating violence by erasure. And that that kind of what I was talking about earlier, it being kind of challenging to leave students with an understanding of contemporary native people as highly problematic for many reasons. But a concrete example is if a non-native person is elected into the main state legislature, then they're responsible for representing communities that they might not even know exist. And that puts a tremendous burden on indigenous communities to then try to educate people who are adults and are already in power about how they can advocate and protect the interests of tribal communities. And that can perpetuate a kind of violence long term where indigenous communities are left out of the conversation at the state level. Like if your existence is sort of not acknowledged, that makes it very difficult to get the needs of your community met and asserted. It sounds like what you're saying is that overall, the goal of increasing awareness of Wabanaki history is not for its own sake, but also for how people in Maine, maybe people in New England relate to each other and understand each other and understand the communities that are that are out there, but maybe not uh, widely known. That's exactly right. Um, There's a wonderful film that came out just a few years ago called Dawnland that many people throughout New England and the country are probably hopefully have had a chance to see and are familiar with. And in the film, um, one of the members of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, who is uh, indigenous himself, Uh, asks that exact question, which is how do white communities or non-native communities move from being occupiers to being neighbors? And that seems to be the central question of the Wabanaki studies work that we're doing. How, How do we allow Portland students, indigenous and non, to learn to live together in a way that is respectful of everybody's humanity and rights? And I know it's in the early stages, but I did want to ask about the Africana Studies curriculum you're also working on. First of all, can you explain the focal point of this? The call for Africana Studies has really come from Black students themselves, particularly at one of our local high schools, the Black Students Union 
issued a call for decolonizing curriculum at that high school. And so I have met with those students many times, and actually um, several of them have been on the social studies committee helping to direct the work. And then certainly the, the Black Lives Matter movement has helped to make that call and the urgency around developing that curriculum all the greater. So what's the long-term goal here, Fiona? Because you're doing all this work for Portland Main schools, but it's hard not to think about other students outside the district who may not have school leaders devoting resources to, ve- to developing new anti-racist curriculum. Is, is there a way that this work can be scaled up to reach schools in other parts of New England? And if so, how can we do that? Um, that's another great question. I, there is hope that this, um, the Wabanaki studies work in particular, once the curriculum and a lot of the heavy lifting of the development has been done, that um, the state throws resources behind it to help expand that curriculum to communities all over what's now called Maine. Fiona Hopper is social studies teacher, leader, and coordinator of Wabanaki Studies for the Portland Public Schools District in Maine. She's working to develop both a Wabanaki Studies and Africana Studies curriculum for her district. Fiona, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. A number of New England states have taken legislative action to require more inclusive lessons in schools. There's a bill in the Maine state legislature right now that would require African-American history education for K-12 students. In 2019, Connecticut passed a law requiring black and Latino studies in all public school curricula. The same year, Vermont passed a law to form an ethnic and social equity working group that will make recommendations for more inclusive state education standards. That work is currently ongoing. And that's our show for today. We hope you learned something. I know I certainly did. I'm Tracy Griffith. And I did too. I'm Peter Biello. And I'm Morgan Springer. A huge thank you to Peter and Tracy for co-hosting. This show is a production of the New England News Collaborative and America Amplified and was the final episode in a four-part series of specials on racism in New England. You can find all four episodes at our website, nextnewengland.org. Our program was produced by me, Jane Vaughn, Lydia Brown, John Dankosky, and Daniela Luna. Vanessa De La Torre is the executive editor of the New England News Collaborative, theme music by Latrell James. America Amplified and the New England News Collaborative are made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. 